wrapping up our studies in the book of Exodus. We have marched with the Israelites from slavery uh, to Sinai, where God meets with them and tells them who they're supposed to be and who he is. And now he's about to lead them to the promised land, it seems. And yet, as we come to the last chapter or two, um, this chapter has the feel to me of sort of like Christmas Day, where you as a child, you've opened every present but one, and you haven't quite gotten what you're waiting for. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, there's that one thing you really, really wanted. You've opened them all, except for one. It's back in the corner. You hope that's it. That's where the Israelites are now. They've been brought out of slavery. They've seen God's power. Uh, they've heard his promises about a land he's going to deliver them to and promises to make them a beautiful people that's a blessing to the world. And yet there's something else they really want, and they don't have it yet. And I wonder if you know what it is. I wonder if you have it yourselves. Uh, As you see, we're going to be reading in a lot of places. Don't get discouraged. Um, We're actually going to read a few of these now and a few of them later as we get started, uh, after we get started. So we're going to start in Exodus 33 and read parts of 40 and then we'll pray. So starting in chapter 33, verses 14. uh, And God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And uh, Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with us, with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Now chapter 40, skipping around a bit, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And now down to verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. You shall put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him, and he will serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood. Say that a couple times fast. Perpetual priesthood. Throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And then verse 33, to the end of the chapter. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Pray, Lord, that as we come a mixed people, some of us who believe every word we've just read, even if they don't know what it means, and uh, others of us perhaps that are deeply skeptical that this old book has anything pertinent to say to us, we pray that you would show us wonderful things about yourself tonight. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
There's this uh, Coke Zero commercial that you've probably seen, and I hope you have the same reaction that I do. Uh, it starts off with a little boy receiving an ice cream cone from uh, a guy in a store over the counter. And as he's receiving it, he says, and? And the guy apologizes and takes it back and gives him a scoop of sprinkles with a cherry on top and hands it back. And then it shoots forward to him in his late 20s, early 20s, uh, with a sharp-dressed businessman across the desk who says, congratulations, you have the job. And this 20-something says, and? and the business exec says, with stock options. And then you have this visual of fast cars and fast boats and jet airplanes. And then you shoot it forward a little bit further, and he's sitting in a diner with a bunch of friends, and he picks up a can of Coke Zero, and he pops the cap, and he drinks it. And there are fireworks in his head. And someone hits a home run. There's explosions going on. It's fabulous. It's, it's crazy how good this is. And you see this look of concern. What more can I possibly ask of this drink? That's what's going on in his head. This is who he is by nature. He always expects more. And? And he notices on the side of the can, real Coke taste in zero calories. He breathes a sigh of relief. He's someone that always expected and demanded more. And what we have in the Israelites in our text is something very much like this. Uh, they were a bunch of slaves in Egypt. They had no right to expect anything. And God drew near and brought them out, uh, powerfully revealing himself, making promises to be his God, they would be his people, promising to not only make them his people, but to use them to be a blessing to the world and to give them a land. And here at the end of the story, they're saying, and? They have a real expectation for something more. And uh, even though I sort of want to smack this kid who's always asking, and, uh, I think he teaches us something that's important. Uh, we are sometimes far too easily pleased. We expect too little. And uh, we need to be more like him and more like the Israelites in this sense, that they expect more from God. What they desire is his presence and for his presence to make a difference. That's what we read in Exodus 33. Moses saying, if you don't go with us to make us different, we're not going to go anywhere. They want nothing less than God's very presence dwelling with them daily, all the time, so that they would be different. They are asking for more, and we should be like them. Uh, because generally speaking, I'm not speaking about Christians, and if you're not a Christian here, then welcome. I'm giving you an inside world of our many failures. Uh, we expect far too little from God. What we often expect is a lot from life. Here in America, we expect a lot from life, and we sort of expect life to give us lots of things. We expect God sort of to bless us as we try to get those things out of life. Uh, but we don't necessarily expect much from God. And what we're going to see in our text is that God has grand plans to bring us into his glory. We're going to see that God dwells with his people in glory. And we're going to see tonight that God lived in a tent. He lived as a tent. It's a bit strange. And then he makes us his tent. So he lived in a tent, lived as a tent, and then makes us his tent. So first, it's clear from our texts that we've read already that God lived in a tent, which should strike you as very strange. Um, and what we're encountering here in the last chapter, in verse 40, is really the climax of the book. It doesn't seem very exciting. And if you've been reading from chapter 25 till now, it seems even less exciting. I mean, God has sent plagues 
on Egypt. He's marched his people through a, a Red Sea and destroyed the Israelite, uh, the Egyptian army. Uh, he's shown himself in power and glory on a mountaintop. These all seem much more exciting and climactic. And here, what we're talking about for 15 chapters is the blueprints for a tent. From chapter 25 till now, has been blueprints for a tent. If you've ever read through this section in parts of Leviticus, you're just thinking like, oh my gosh, another basin and another tent curtain and another pomegranate and another. Um, if you haven't read it, I'm telling you, that's what it's, it's like reading blueprints only in prose form. And yet it's the climax of the book, 15 chapters devoted to this because God plans to move in with his people. And in chapter 40, he does. Day by day, Moses meticulously puts things together puts the tent up, and God moves in to the tent. And when we studied this tent, and we didn't do this, I spared you 15 chapters of reading, if we were to read through the list of materials and everything that goes into it and the colors, what we'd see is this is a royal tent. This thing's made of rich purple materials and gold. Um, we have precise plans and careful construction. What's being built here, even though it's a tent, is something like a royal palace. It's like a royal tent. Um, it even has a throne. The altar in the Holy of Holies, where God is thought to dwell between the mercy seat. It's a royal tent, and it's also a holy tent. And that does come through in what we've read. The, the people that are supposed to serve in this tent, the priests, they have to be holy. They're consecrated. They're set apart for their service. And in verse 33, we read about a court and an altar. And actually, this is a, is there a chalk. Uh, it may be helpful to actually demonstrate this. Uh, the tabernacle is this square building. That's supposed to be built, and inside is a super holy place called the Holy of Holies, where no one gets to go but the high priest once a year. And this would just sort of be the generally holy place. And God here in verse 33 is saying, you need to build a court, which is generally speaking also a holy place, with a seven-foot-high curtain all the way around it. One gate from the east. That's it. And in order to get in to the court, you have to walk right by a huge altar. In other words, everything about this thing screams holy, set apart. This is where a holy God dwells. And you just can't simply walk in to this. Now, at this point, you should be thinking, God's come to dwell among his people, but he's a king and he's holy. I mean, what kind of dwelling is this? Like, this is like the rich, rich people that build their house right in the city, build an eight-foot-high stone wall around it. Like, why bother? Um, but really, this is a tent of meeting. God intends to be with his people. We see that in verse 2 that we read in chapter 40. On the first day of the first month, erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. God actually anticipates, expects this to be a, a place where he meets with his people. He's coming down to live in this thing so he can be with his people. Another thing that's important about that verse is the date. The first day of the first month of the second year. Did I get that right? It's important. First day of the first month. Yeah. Uh, this is a one-year anniversary. One-year anniversary of the, of the probably a year ago, God brought them out of Egypt on, on Passover. Exactly one year later, God's saying, as an anniversary gift to you, my people, this is about a relationship. I am moving in. This is all about a relationship. God moving close to his people in this tent. God living in a tent. Holy King, God of the universe, out of love, humbly comes and dwells with his people. And yet, there's a problem. The problem is access, right? Seven, 
foot high curtain surrounding it, one single simple small gate to get into it. God dwells in the midst of his people, but they can't see, they can't get in. Every time they do get in, they have to bring a sacrifice in. And the problem is that we want more. At least the Israelites will. And uh, we see that even it's so holy that even Moses can't go in. Uh, access is an issue because what we want, what they want, what Moses wants is more. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this. This is a beautiful thing. And I think it resonates with your heart if you're honest about what you want out of life. What more, you may ask, do we want than to see something that's beautiful or to be a part of it? He says, ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We don't want merely to see beauty, though God knows that even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words at all. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive the beauty into ourselves. We want to bathe in it. We want to become a part of it. At present, we are on the outside, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of a morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with all the splendors we see, but someday, God willing, we shall get in. It's from his essay, The Weight of Glory. And what we're seeing here is God dwelling in this tent of glory, and the people can see it. It's radiating. And part of them is probably saying, that's awful, like literally full of awe. I want to run and hide. And the other half of them is saying, and this is in the same human heart, how do I get into that? I actually want to get into that. And those, both of those emotions are part of who we are as people. But between that glory and us stands an altar. And uh, how do we have access to this God? With a curtain and an altar. How do we have access? Well, what if God himself, in all his glory, walked out of the tent? walked out of the Holy of the Holies, and walked among us. What actually if God walked out of the Holy of Holies and just picked up the whole tabernacle and wrapped himself in it and came to us? Because that's something like what happens in the person of Jesus, God living among us as a tent. Now, we read earlier together John 1, 14, and it's a remarkable verse in which we read, if I can find it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And what we see here in this verse is God in the person of Jesus in his divine fullness, that is in all his glory, full of grace and truth, coming in flesh. How full of glory? I mean, is this like a little bit of glory? Hebrews says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus walks out of the Holy of Holies, fully God, in all its fullness and all his glory, in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt in John 1 there, it's the same word, the word for tabernacle. Literally, he came in his flesh and dwelt, lived, tented among us. Tabernacled right here with his people. So that the full glory of God would be on display in the person of Jesus. So that we would know what Jesus, what God, is really like. Uh, it's hard to believe. I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous. 
It should sound ludicrous. If it doesn't sound somewhat ludicrous, even if you've been a Christian for 15, 20 years, um, you need to take a little objective step back. It's, a, it's ludicrous enough that John, who wrote this book, also wrote another letter, and he said, uh, just to make it clear, we touched him. We heard him. We really did. We touched. It was real. We, we touched God, the tent, in the person of Jesus. I know you don't believe me, but we touched him and we heard him. It was real. 1 John chapter 1. But it gets better than that. Not only does he come out of the Holy of Holies so that we can know him, but he gives himself for us. He makes the sacrifice. The principle hasn't changed. Access to God in the Holy of Holies requires a sacrifice. We cannot, of our own, draw near to God without a sacrifice. And when God draws near to us, it requires a sacrifice. And so what we have in the person of Jesus, something remarkable. Uh, Actually, in the same chapter, John chapter 1, right after this, Jesus is walking, and another prophet named John the Baptist sees him, and he doesn't say, there goes the glory of God in the form of a tent, in the form of a man. What he says is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And this is Jesus in John chapter 1. God, full of glory in the flesh, the Holy of Holies walking among us, and the perfect sacrifice, which makes us available, which gives us access. If you will, Jesus walks out of the Holy of Holies, God in all his glory, as the perfect high priest, and lays himself on the altar so that God's people can have access to him and his glory. This is a perfect sacrifice that forgives us for all our sins. It gives us access to God's glory. We long to get close to glory. And uh, it may manifest itself in different ways. You may be thinking like... You're talking crazy stuff. God and flesh and tabernacles and blood sacrifices. Oh, this Follow me with this principle at least. We all long to get close to glory. We see a famous person, maybe we follow them. Or take a picture. Or have the guts to say, hey, could you like take a picture with me or sign this? Um, it's so important, in fact, to our current society that it's actually a little troubling. There was a survey done a year or two ago with 6,500 teenagers on the, sur- on the topic of fame. And I'm just going to read a couple of the results. So one of the tests was uh, you're given a magic button. And by pushing it, you become either stronger, smarter, famous, or more beautiful. Uh, boys chose fame as often as they chose intelligence. Equal smarts and fame. Uh, girls chose fame more often than anything else. Uh, the second question was, which job would you most like to have? CEO of a major company. A Navy SEAL. A U.S. senator, president of a fine university like Harvard or Yale, or personal assistant to a very famous singer or movie star. 43% of female respondents wanted to be a personal assistant to a very famous singer or movie star. They wanted to be close to the glory. Seriously, just a little bit of vicarious residual glory coming my way. Uh, Third question, which famous person would you most like to get dinner with? Uh, third place, this is, survey is about three years old, which makes sense. Uh, tied for third, Paris Hilton and 50 Cent. It's a little dated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, second place, Jesus. Nice, yeah. First place, Jennifer Lopez. 
So, um, don't laugh too much. <laughs> this is where you were three years ago. <laughs> um, a couple of thoughts. By nature, somewhere deep inside of us, we all long to get in on the glory. And somehow or other, we know that it sometimes resides in other people. If I can get close to them, if I can be seen with them, if I can become like them, uh, somehow we know our own glory may not be enough, so we work really hard. Um, we look at our, work on our looks, we work on our performance, we work on our reputation, we work on our academics, our status, our relationships to validate us, to make us something we're not. Because we don't think we're enough. There's a tacit admission that sometimes getting in on the glory means getting closer to someone else who has more than we do. Someone has a greater glory. And what we have in a person of Jesus is someone who's infinitely more glorious than anyone else in the whole world. Who knows exactly what we're like. Who knows uh, that we're so special that he had to die for us. I mean... You got that, right? I mean, we don't, by nature of our glory or our merit or our fame, have access to God. We don't. We don't, we don't, what we deserved is much worse. God knows that. And yet, in the person of Jesus, we have one full of glory who lays down his own life for us because he values us and loves us. Not because we've earned it, just because he loves us. Who else is going to do that for you? Who else would do that for you? Is Jennifer Lopez going to do that for you? I don't think so. So we see that God lives in a tent. He comes as a tent in the person of Jesus. And lastly, uh, he makes us his tent. And uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians, which we didn't read. I'll read it now. Just a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. It's very interesting uh, that both these teachings here, these two different sections, uh, both run the same way. Do you not know? Do you not know? Uh, and, and Paul, who's writing this, is saying to them, uh, to both people in the plural, the first chapter is to the church, all the Christians living together as God's people. Do you not know God dwells in you, that you are his temple, that God now has made us his tent, his tabernacle? If you're a Christian, you're a part of a community, whether you want to be or not, his church. And he dwells in you, plural, or as we would say in the South correctly, Y'all, uh, he dwells in y'all, the collective, uh, as his church. You are now his temple. It's plan A and B, and there is no other plan. And then in chapter 6, again, this time it's singular. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's talking to you individually, and you individually if you're a Christian. God dwells in you personally if you're a Christian. He moves in and makes you his home. By the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he, has, he says it twice. Do you not know? Because this is crazy to us. It's crazy. 
I mean, he's writing to Christians who can, who can barely believe it. And it should blow your mind if you're a Christian, and even if you're not, it should blow your mind even more perhaps, that God would be willing not only to make a tent in the desert and dwell with a bunch of people. Crazy that he would actually take human flesh and live among us. Crazy that he would actually move into your heart and live amongst a bunch of people that call themselves Christians who often, very often, aren't what they're supposed to be. But this is the kind of God we serve. One who tabernacles among us, who moves into our very lives, who dwells in us by a spirit. And you may th- be thinking, I don't see it. I don't see it in my own life. I don't see it in the lives of Christians. I don't see it in the life of the church. It's a little crazy. Well, I mean, it's all a little bit crazy. God living in a tent in the desert, taking human flesh. This is a measure it's an image, this is a reminder of the nature of his love for us, of the great cost he has. It's chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, uh, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. What's that price? The life of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for you. He prizes you so much. He wants to move in so much that he dies for you in order to move in. That is the cost, the cost of acquiring you was his own life. You are precious to him. And he's committed to you as he's committed to his church. Yes, it's a messed up organism. It's not what it's supposed to be. And yet it is his prized possession that he died for, that he loves, that he's committed to. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he's moved in, not just to live there, but to change you. And, uh, of course, that's hard because some of us would rather die than be changed. Uh, but some of us are desperate to be changed. And God is going to move in and change us. He is out to make us like himself, to beautify us, to uh, make us his holy home, his residence. So by nature, we think we have to achieve glory. We have to tidy the thing up so God can move in to make ourselves acceptable for the kind of place that God would be. Uh, this isn't how it works. Instead, trust Christ, and he moves in and begins to rearrange the furniture of our lives and reorient us, making us like himself. There are two paths of glory available to you, and we all want glory. Even us misanthropic introverts, we just want to go hide in the glory in a corner. I mean, we're hiding in the corner, but like we're making plans to conquer the world uh, or something. Uh, we're just having someone else figured out how to do it for us. But uh, we all want glory. Fullness, peace, joy, happiness. It's two ways to do it. You can serve yourself, seeking to change yourself, hoping that God notices and that other people will notice. Or you can serve the God who loves you, who prizes you, who gives himself for you, who moves in, makes you like himself. So much so that you now seek to give him the glory and serve others. What path are you on? What glory path are you plotting right now? You are on one or the other. So we've seen God lives in a tent. He's come as a tent. He makes us his tent. And we ask the and question. We want more out of life. And I'm telling you, we should want more out of God. And uh, some of you who have grown up in the church, you just think it's enough. God's, God saved me, and now I get to go to heaven when I die. God wants more from you. And actually, you want more out of life. And I'm telling you, you need to want more out of God. Because he wants to move in and make you holy and make you beautiful and use you for his glory. 
That's his plan. That's his intent. That's what his plan has always been. To bring you into himself and to bring himself into you. Uh, Towns Van Zant. Anyone familiar with Towns Van Zant? That's too bad because he's a genius. Stuart Towns Van Zant. Oh, come now. Anyway, uh, famous old curmudgeon-y uh, singer-songwriter. He's been dead for a while. Great songwriter. He, he wrote uh, these lyrics. We all got holes to fill. Uh, the holes are all that's real. Some fall on you like a storm. Sometimes you dig your own. The choice is yours to make. Time is yours to take. Uh, did you hear those first couple words? We all got holes to fill. Them holes are all that's real. Uh, do, you, do you feel that just a little bit? We are shot through with holes. We know we're not the kind of people we're supposed to be. We have longings and achings for joy and peace and fulfillment and glory. But we have holes that go all the way through us. And we have this desperate plan. It's sort of like hide one side of the hole so people won't see how needy we are and try to fill the other side with stuff desperately. Anything to give me joy or peace or fulfillment or glory. You can keep doing that. You can believe what this text says. That there's a God of the universe that loves you enough to lay down his life for you in the person of Jesus and to move in. To move into your holes and into your home that is your life and to fill you with his glory, to beautify you, to use you for his purposes. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you.